Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to the Byline Times podcast. The Byline Times, it's what the papers don't say, what radio doesn't report and what telly doesn't tell you. This time, migration rhetoric versus reality. The Conservative government has made a shibboleth of cutting down the numbers of people coming into the country compared to the number leaving. As far back as 2010, the then Prime Minister David Cameron pledged to reduce net migration below 100,000. But that target has never been met, not even during the pandemic. The EU referendum of 2016 was waged, partly anyway, on a platform of curbing migration. But recently updated figures from the Office of National Statistics show that last year, net migration reached a record of 745,000. Now, Home Secretary James Cleverly has declared that, and I quote, enough is enough. His latest five-point plan is designed to reduce net migration by 300,000, but that would still leave it far in excess of that mythical 100,000 figure. Cleverly raised the pay threshold so that skilled foreign workers will have to earn £38,700 in order to qualify for British residents, whilst care workers, who obviously earn much less than that, will no longer be able to bring in their dependents. And, as Paul Daniels would have said, there's more. In total, this package, plus our reduction in student dependents, will mean around 300,000 fewer people will come in future years than have come to the UK last year. From January 2024, the right for international students to bring dependents will be removed unless they are on postgraduate courses designated as a research programme. We have also stopped international students from switching out of the student route into work routes before their studies have been completed. These measures are possible because we are building up our domestic workforce and supporting British workers. Which is all well and good. But how come, when we have all these British workers already, do we have fruit and veg unpicked in the fields? Why is roughly one in ten care jobs unfilled? Could there possibly be a gap between the rhetoric around migration and the reality? I've been speaking to Zoe Gardner, an independent researcher and campaigner on migrant rights. First off, I asked her to take me through the key points of James Cleverley's announcement. There's a sort of hodgepodge of classic anti-migrant policies and tweaks to the immigration system being proposed here. It's not the major overhaul of the immigration system that I would like to see by a long way. It's basically trying to pull this lever or that lever to reduce people's rights in the hope that that will result in lower figures that they can then brag about overall. So the specific proposals are to increase the salary threshold. That's really tied up with the fact that our immigration system is an employer sponsorship system. So the reason why the government has anything to say about what immigrant workers are being paid is because they provide a license to sponsor visas to employers. And then an immigrant comes to the UK based on the fact that they've been sponsored by their boss. So they have their job set up and their boss has sponsored their visa and is responsible for that. So their boss has to therefore prove to the government that they're paying them this amount or that amount. Firstly, it doesn't work very well for the government to be setting rates of pay. It certainly doesn't work very well for the government to be setting high minimum rates of pay, because obviously a lot of the labour shortages that we have are in parts of the economy that don't pay 35 grand. 
So then the government has had to make these sort of piecemeal adjustments and create this shortage occupation list, which is basically a list of jobs where you don't have to meet that salary threshold in order to sponsor a visa. Their visa is still provided by their employer. And the reason why I'm emphasizing that is that that's actually one of the really big problems with the immigration system that none of these proposals does anything to address. Because if people's right to be in the country is tied to their employer, then their employer can very easily withhold pay, treat them poorly, ask them to work unpaid overtime, you know, exploit them basically, and in extreme cases, very seriously. And those people don't really have a voice in order to complain or change employer, because that's the basis on which they're here is that they work for that employer. So fiddling with the salary threshold, long story short, isn't actually any kind of a solution. And they're just simply going to have to maintain exceptions if they raise the salary threshold because we have major labor shortages in areas like social care, nursing, construction, farming. None of these areas of work pay 35K. And so what are we going to do? We could have a conversation about whether we should be paying farm workers 35K a year. I'd be up for that conversation, but I don't think that's on the cards from this government. So this is about tying their hands, announcing something that doesn't really work. They're going to have to keep exceptions to their own policy. And it's not actually getting at the issue, which is this employer sponsorship model. At the same time, we do have hundreds of thousands of people who are of working age, but who are not working in the UK. And I think the government would like to see more of those people working. If there are fewer people available from overseas to do jobs and traditionally low-paid jobs like farming, like care work, will that not give those people an incentive to get a job? Will the government not be itself incentivized to perhaps push them towards work in those areas? I don't think that this is the right way around, basically. I think that there is definitely an argument about how the government should for example, be funding local authorities to provide better salaries in care work. And there should be a better market for farm workers in order to drive up wages. Those things are true. The problem is, is that as with so many things, because this is a government that its entire essence and reason for being here seems to be about kicking migrants, either reducing their numbers or just saying they shouldn't be here because they're this type of person or that type of person. The entire government agenda is sort of led by the nose of immigration policy. Immigration can do loads of great things for our country. It can bring in skills in areas where we need them. It can bring in family members, loved ones. It can enrich our culture. It can do all sorts of things, but it can't make the government pay care workers an adequate salary. It's the government that needs to invest in the care system in the first place. It's the government that needs to legislate for and enforce crucially enforce minimum standards of pay in areas like farming. That's for the government to do. And to say that fiddling with the rights of immigrants is actually going to achieve that, one way or the other, it isn't true. And that's the problem, (laughs) because the government doesn't want to be held to account for the fact that it doesn't enforce labor standards and it doesn't enforce minimum pay. And the fact that it's minimum pay in areas like farming, especially if you're a migrant and can't rely on benefits, is too low. It doesn't want to have to address those issues. It doesn't want to have to invest in local authorities' ability to provide the care we need. It wants to be able to give migrants a kicking and say it's done the job. (laughs) It just hasn't. When you say it wants to give migrants a kicking, of course, there is a lot of rhetoric around migration, and I'd like to explore that with you in a moment. And there has been a campaign against the small boats in the channel. But if you compare the rhetoric 
with the reality in 2022, the UK allowed record net inward migration, 745,000 people. So the government talks the talk. It doesn't walk the walk. And that suggests that in Britain, actually, we are very welcoming to migrants, even at an official level. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because there's this huge dichotomy between rhetorically the most anti-migrant government probably in recent history. And then they're also the highest numbers of net immigration. And I think you're right to point it out in Britain, but it's actually a trend that's repeated across Europe. For example, Italy, where they elected somebody from the real hard far right, Giorgio Maloney, standing on a platform that was essentially just about stopping the boats, stopping the immigration and stopping foreigners. And also in Italy, it's quite a nasty debate. It's really quite explicitly racist sometimes. Maloney made all those promises. At one side of her mouth, she's calling for like gunboats in the Mediterranean to permanent blockade and all this ridiculous rubbish about refugees. The other side of her mouth, she's creating new routes for low-paid, supposedly low-skilled, although that's not necessarily the case, farm workers, especially farm workers, hospitality workers, care workers, to come into Italy in larger numbers than ever before. Why is that? Because Italy, even worse than the UK, has an aging population that desperately needs labor. And countries in Africa and across Asia have young populations where there are few opportunities. And so it makes sense. There's an obvious pattern happening here. There will need to be labor coming into our economies in Europe. We are getting older It's the same in France. It's the same in Greece. They've got these huge top line policies to stamp on refugees, but they're bringing in regularization programs for people who came under those very same circumstances are working in their economy in essential jobs, and they're going to give them papers and regularize their stay. So all across Europe, we're speaking out of both sides of our mouth here. We're demonizing migrants, but we need migrants and we need them desperately. There are issues associated with migration and with migrants bringing their families to settle. Those issues include pressures on the NHS. They include pressures on state schools. Of course, migrants, if they're working, are paying taxes. They're growing the tax base of this country so that the NHS and the education system can be paid for. But sometimes, even in a well-run economy, It can take a considerable amount of time for that extra tax revenue to be converted into improved health services, into improved state school provision. So can you understand why people sometimes feel uncomfortable about the arrival of large numbers of migrants? They may also feel that there are cultural differences between them and the new arrivals. That's something which is a an age-old concern and isn't necessarily a sign that people are just narrow-minded bigots. I can certainly empathise with people who are concerned about the crumbling infrastructure of this country. We've had decades of underinvestment in our NHS. We've had decades of underperformance on building sufficient, affordable homes for people. As I say, our society is aging. We're getting older. We're living for longer. We need those homes for longer. We need NHS care for longer, social care for longer. 
even on a sort of more prosaic level, like big infrastructure projects like public transport, the government's just chucked out its big flagship HS2 policy to build adequate train connectivity. So like, yes, under those circumstances, a significant population increase like we've seen over the last year can provoke some challenges. Now, I think that those can be massively overplayed. And all of the literature basically tells us that the impact of immigration, even large numbers of immigrants on the public purse and on public services is pretty much neutral, tiny, tiny negligible amounts of impact one way or the other. As you say, people come in, they make use of services, but they also provide services, they also pay taxes, and it basically balances itself out. But I can see that when we have a housing crisis, and then the government's telling us that 745,000 more people came to the country this year. And all of those people need and deserve to live in a decent house. I can see that problem, but the problem is one of underinvestment. I truly believe that everybody in the country deserves a decent home. And so we should build decent homes for everybody in the country, not kick people out of the country until there's few of us enough that we fit in the crumbling infrastructure we have. Like that's just not the right way around to look at it. So I do think it needs to be planned better and it needs to be communicated better But I don't agree with turning around and blaming migration. And then just quickly on the culture point, I find this one quite difficult because I am a Londoner. I have so many friends from all over the world themselves or whose families have come from all over the world in the past. And that applies to my family too. It applies to most of us, actually. You go back a little bit. I know that Islam is the fastest growing religion in the UK, If you have a problem with that, you know, like go out and start converting people to Christianity or something. I don't know. I don't know what you expect to do about that. These people are British. Like that is part of our culture now. And culture develops and changes all the time. And I don't think London would be London if it wasn't diverse. You know, I I get all these idiots shouting at me online, I'm sure you can imagine. And a lot of the time they say, well, oh, yeah, you would never live in an area with immigrants. I live in one of the most diverse boroughs in the country. And I love that. And I genuinely think that our capacity to grow and to absorb people and the new ideas and the new culture that that brings is actually overwhelmingly positive and much greater than people give us credit for. Like, The UK is actually one of the least racist, most well-integrated, multi-ethnic societies in the world. I think we should be damn proud of that. And we can carry on. In 1997, when Tony Blair was elected, people were asked to list their priorities, their political priorities. Only 3% listed migration as one of their priorities. By the time of the EU referendum in 2016, that had risen to 48%. It does seem as though in recent years, migration has been in some way mobilised, you might say weaponized as a political tool. Yeah, I would totally agree. And we have a generation of politicians across not just Europe, but also the entirety of the West, really, whose primary defining characteristic of their political ambition is about saying that they will reduce immigration or better control immigration, which means reduce immigration, or reduce the rights of migrants, whether that's in terms of their human rights and their fundamental protection from torture and and abuse, or whether that's their right to claim benefits on an equal basis to the rest of the population, or live with their spouse and children on an equal basis to the rest of the population. A generation of politicians for whom that has been the ultimate 
key element of their politics. And so no wonder, no wonder we're all up in arms about it and we all consider it a very serious and important concern. But again, what it does is it produces this idea that, sure, net immigration figures are currently at a record high in the UK, but... But there is no massive refugee exodus that is suddenly unprecedented happening around the world that is going to overwhelm Europe. That is completely untrue. The proportion of people around the world who are migrants at all is 3.5%. It's been 3.5% for about seven decades, right? Sure, there's more people in the world, but basically very, very few people move outside of their country. And then if you look at who's refugee, it's about 0.3%. And it's been 0.3% for decades. This perception driven by the fact that we talk about it constantly, that migration is an enormous wave. You know, actually, it's not even like a perception. That's literally what they say, isn't it? Zuela Braverman with her hurricane, this sort of like existential threat. This is actually what is completely normal, completely natural, and totally manageable if you zoom out just a little bit. And so I think that it's become something that people think is always coming around the corner. And, you know, at the extreme end, there's the great replacement theory and people saying, oh, yeah, well, eventually we won't be white anymore. But even in ordinary and non-racist, caring, compassionate people, I see a lot of fear that there's this big, big amount of migration coming. And there's absolutely no evidence that that's the case whatsoever. People move. People will always move. They always have moved. And it's pretty much stable. And it's fine if we manage it properly. But it's been built up by politicians by media and by a lot of grifters, actually, who could make a career off of just hating migrants. And yeah, it's unfortunate because it gives this completely false impression of something that is dangerous, where in fact, it's just the most natural thing in the world. There is a conflation, isn't there, of issues here. There are culture wars, particularly around the arrival of migrants who are Muslim. There is the issue of asylum seekers, people who are fleeing war and persecution and terror and concerns that may seem more prosaic, but which are nevertheless important, such as pressure on the green belt, for example, if we're looking to expand our housing stock. But there seems to be this perfect storm of issues at the moment that politicians of the right, but also of the theoretically left, like Keir Starmer, are quite happy to play to. Yeah, Keir Starmer's recent performance on this issue has been, I don't want to say disappointing because it implies I expected so much more. And like I say, all politicians seem to play into this currently. But I think that Keir Starmer's got some strategic blind spots in terms of how he's playing into this anti-migrant rhetoric. He's made some promises of things that he'll manage better than the Tories. He'll throw out the Rwanda plan. Great. Yeah, that's the bare minimum, to put it mildly. If he falls into this trap of that same rhetoric, like this government has done, the Italian government has done, the French government, the rhetoric of demonizing immigrants, then you're in trouble because, as I say, it's natural, you're not going to stop it, and we need it. So if you demonize people who you actually need to bring into the country, you end up like in the mess that this government's in. And I think Keir Starmer should tread very carefully. And he has an incredible opportunity. If you look at the polls right now, my goodness, who wouldn't want to be in Keir Starmer's shoes? He's like set to get a big majority and be prime minister of the United Kingdom. He could do so much. He could achieve so much change in the way that we talk about this issue. I really hope that he'll give some thought 
to where he's trapping himself by talking about migrants so negatively. And also there's this tendency for Labour, especially under Keir Starmer, to take progressive votes for granted, like progressive Londoners like me couldn't possibly vote for the Tories. So we've got them in the bag. We can basically trash their core issues of concern you know, the conflict in Gaza and the calling for a ceasefire, it goes to the migration issue, it goes to all sorts of things. But they have to vote for us because they can't vote Tory. And I think that at the current time, you look at the polls and you see that almost definitely we'll get a Labour government. So I don't need to run scared and think, oh, no, if I don't vote Labour, I'll get a Tory. All the more reason why somebody in my situation, like social progressive people, are going to turn away from Labour if they carry on with this kind of rhetoric. And we're going to vote for the Greens or the Lib Dems or whoever makes sense, SNP, who all have more welcoming, more positive rhetoric on immigration. And actually, Labour is at risk of losing our votes and shouldn't take it for granted. It's quite aside from the fact that it doesn't do our country any good for them to demonise migrants. They shouldn't take our votes for granted at this current time. One final question. And it's more an observation, really. You've mentioned your own heritage. I'm of migrant stock. Both of my parents were migrants to this country. My father was a refugee. My mother was an economic migrant. And I find the discourse around migration makes me feel very uncomfortable, very unsettled in this country. And my children are also of mixed heritage. I don't know what to do with that feeling or where to place it, but I do know that it makes me feel less welcome in the country that I was born in and that I've known as my home throughout my life. I'm white or would be identified as white by anybody who saw me. If you add in the dimension of colour as well and the racism that is shown towards people who are not white, I just wonder where that leaves our country and people like us. Yeah, I totally understand where you're coming from. When I speak up about migrants' rights, I'm totally read as British. Nobody questions my right to live in this country. But I'm not doing this like I'm standing up for somebody else. I benefit massively from a fairer, more equal society where discrimination and hatred on the basis of race or nationality is obliterated. When I do this work and I advocate for a fairer and better immigration system and a treatment of migrants and refugees that is more humane, it's not because I'm doing it for somebody else. It's because I'm a human too, you know, and it benefits me to protect human rights. The fight is for all of us. And there's been this tendency, again, for a certain group of people to be totally ignored, people who don't necessarily have all the answers, but they don't like to see a world where if you happen to have been born in Sudan, you're screwed right now. <laughs> There's no route to safety in the West. And we colonized Sudan in the past and people are drowning in the Mediterranean and drowning in the channel and being threatened with deportation to Rwanda if they reach the UK and being treated appallingly in the rest of Europe as well. That doesn't sit well with people, but they're not offered a humane alternative. And this is where I go back to Keir Starmer. He could do so much. At the moment, people think, it's either this horrendous cruelty or it's like chaos and oblivion, right? What I was saying before about this idea of these hordes of migrants that are going to come that actually don't exist. 
And what we really need is to offer people who don't like to see that inequality and don't like that racism or that prejudice. And they don't like the fact that just where you're born in life is such a lottery and it ruins people's lives. Those people need to be given a proposal for policies that would actually work, that would be humane, that would be manageable. And they're not offered that by any politician at the moment. And I think that's a real problem that we have. Zoe Gardner, an independent researcher and campaigner on migrant rights. I'm Adrian Goldberg, and this has been the Byline Times podcast produced in Birmingham by me and Harvey White for We Bring Audio. Just a reminder that if you like this podcast and you want to support our work, then please take out a subscription to the Byline Times. That's our fabulous monthly newspaper. It is available now on selected newsstands. But the one way to guarantee your copy is to take out a subscription. So head over to bylinetimes.com. I can't think of a better Christmas present either than taking out a subscription, maybe, for someone else. More details about subscriptions, as I say, at bylinetimes.com. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye.